Okay. Uh, we're, we're continuing our series on following spiritual priorities, and we're also continuing the series on how can I understand what I read in the Word of God? How can I understand what I read in the Scriptures, in the Bible, in the Holy Writ, as the old-time preachers used to say? How can I understand this? So last week, we introduced this part of our study on the Bible, and uh, we looked at our hermeneutic, and there's uh, five parts to our hermeneutic, and we'll read that together in just a minute. But uh, last week, we looked at uh, 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, being able to interpret and apply it correctly. And so uh, we begin, is that next slide, is that our, our hermeneutic? Okay, uh, let's read this together, okay? We study the scripture through a normative slash literal, grammatical, historical, contextual, and dispensational method of interpretation or hermeneutic in order to accurately understand the text and discern the intent of each passage. Now, you know, it's not like you got to go to, to theology classes and Bible college and seminary in order to get a hermeneutic. Everybody has a hermeneutic. A hermeneutic just means this is the method we use to interpret the scripture. Now, some people, they really haven't studied, so they'll read a verse and they'll immediately think, okay, what do I think about this and how does this apply to me? And, and there's some bigger ideas here. So we have developed as a church a hermeneutic we use to read and understand the scripture. The first part is normative slash literal, that we don't seek a mystical meaning. We instead look to understand the most normal, literal, common reading, unless there's a scriptural reason why we should not. Then the second part is grammatical. We, we read it like a book. We don't just pick words out. We reread them in order. And it's written in sentences. So we look for subjects and objects. We look for nouns and verbs. And the structure of the text actually helps us understand the meaning of the text. Then the third part is the historical perspective. We look to understand what did the writer mean when he wrote those words. Because there are some words that were written in Scripture that we learn from, but they don't really apply to us. They were written to a different people in a different setting, and we can learn from that. Uh, but we don't directly apply it. So how did the people who read it the first time understand it? Uh, what did the author mean when he wrote the words as the Holy Spirit inspired him to write? And only after we look at the history can we then try and apply it to our lives today. We have to see the setting in which it was originated. So today we're going to focus on the fourth part, and that is the context of Scripture. So hopefully uh, you have a Bible with you and you can turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. At the, the contextual part of it, how can I understand what I read in the Bible? 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to go ahead and begin reading there. 
In verse number 20, it says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. None of what we have received from God is a private interpretation. Now, this means two things. This means there is not a Bible written just for Tom. There's not a Bible written just for Evelyn. There's a Bible written for all of us, and we cannot have our own personal interpretation. I'm pretty sure I shared before, I was at a pastor's gathering up in Phoenix, and there were, I don't know, 250 pastors and spouses and staff members of churches all gathered together. We had this nationwide speaker who came in, and, and he gave us a challenge, and and he said, all right, he read the text. He said, here's the traditional interpretation of that text, what we would call the accurate interpretation. And then he said, now here's the liberal interpretation of the text, which really wasn't actually, they were reading into the text instead of learning from the text. And then he said, now here's my translation. And he just made it say whatever he wanted, an allegorical application of it, instead of really looking at the text. And it, and it was very frustrating. It was, it, was, uh, it was, I was very frustrated because there were a bunch of people out there, amen, wow, and, and one guy afterward talked to me, man, I didn't know that was in there. I said, you know why you didn't know it? Because it's not. <laughs> and you got to read what the Bible says. And so we have to look at context. You can't have your own interpretation. But it doesn't just mean that. It also means you can't pull a verse in isolation. In, in a verse, there's called the text, right? The text of Scripture. And to get the context of it, you have to look at the pretext, not making something up, but the literary pretext. And you have to look at the post-text. So you got what comes before and after. You, you have to build into it as you're looking at the text and, and read it to connect it. And I realized this morning... We're kind of jumping into two verses here in First Peter. Uh, but you have to look at the context. No scripture is a private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of men. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is not a man a generated book. In fact, most of the so-called inspirational religious books that are generated by man, uh, they teach that you have to earn your salvation or they teach that you can reach enlightenment and a place of perfection here in your life on earth. The Bible doesn't teach either of those things. The Bible says we receive salvation as a gift, but we have an inner struggle to the day we die. The flesh versus the spirit. We live in an internal combat zone. Some of you know what it's like to have part of your body fighting the other part of your body, right? We all have the flesh fighting the spirit. So no scripture is of any private interpretation. <coughs> Excuse me. In our English Bible, there are 3,102 verses. And I clarified that by saying in our English Bible. Because in the Hebrew Bible, the headings of each of the Psalms is included as a verse. 
So where the English Bible has verse 1, the Hebrew Bible has that as verse 2, and the introduction heading is verse 1. So in our English Bible, there's 31,000, sorry, 31,102 verses in our English version. If I said it wrongly before, forgive me. We can't edit that out. It's too messed up. But okay, not one of those verses, not one, is designed to stand alone. They're all interconnected. They are inherently and intentionally linked together. And without that connection, you could not understand the word and will of God. And you wouldn't be able to understand his mind and his heart. In fact, the Bible was not divided into verses until 1551 for the New Testament and 1571 for the Old Testament. So for more than 1400 years of the New Testament, uh, that it was not divided into chapters and verses. And for three to 4,000 years in the Old Testament, it was not divided into verses. So you would read it as a book, you'd read through. And so uh, we need to understand that no verse stands alone. You cannot have your own personal interpretation. It's God's truth, not man's truth. And you cannot have one verse that you lift out of everything else. Because prophecy never came by the will of man. People didn't sink, sit around and think this up. God revealed it to us. And then holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter specifically mentions the word of prophecy, but we apply this to all of Scripture. The law, the poetry, the history, the gospels, the epistles, the revelation. This is a God-breathed book. As we looked two weeks ago, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given how? By inspiration of God. So, now when we really want to get into the context of it, there are six questions that we need to ask, okay? So, I don't know if you want to use the note sheet in your bulletin or not. You don't have to, but if you want to, it's there. So, here's six questions for how we discern the context. Question number one, where is it found in the scriptures? Where is it found in the scripture? Where? Well, what difference does that make? Have you heard the term genre? Genre is the literary classification of things. And so where something's found in scripture sometimes determines how you interpret it. If you look on the screen, we have a... Um, clip that we got from Answers in Genesis. And so the first five books are all stacked up. That's the Pentateuch, the books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then you have the books of history, starting with Joshua. It's, I'm sure where you guys are, you can't read the fine text that's in the shelf. Uh, so in the, it has the law and then the history and then the poetry and then you get into the major prophets and minor prophets, the gospels, Paul's epistles, general epistles and Acts stands alone as a transition of church history, a transition between the gospels and all the epistles or letters. So let's look at Proverbs 22.6, okay? And as we're looking at Proverbs 22.6, where is this found in the genres of scripture. 
is found in the books of poetry, sometimes also called the wisdom literature. And so Proverbs are general truths or general wisdom or common wisdom. They're not universal truths. So are you in Proverbs 22? Did I ask you to turn to Proverbs 22? Okay. Look at verse number 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Well, what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what I've heard it say. I've heard people say they had a child who was raised in church, but they walked away from God, and they're not living for the Lord, but they know based on that promise in Scripture that when that child gets old, they're going to come back to God. That's not what that Scripture teaches. And then others have said, well, what that means, you have to indoctrinate your kids. You have to to jam the fundamentals in there, just push and push and push to get it in there so that when they grow up, they won't walk away from the Lord. Well, that's not exactly what it means either. It's to train up a child in the way he should go. Each child is different. Each child's unique. You can't use cookie-cutter methodology with your kids. You know, we used to laugh that our oldest daughter, when we really wanted to punish her, we took away her books and made her go outside to play. And then our older son, when we wanted to punish him, we made him go inside and read. They were just different. They, they had different interests and different loves. And so train them up in the way you should go. Yes, there is a broad-based Christian fundamental perspective of Scripture and, and wisdom from God that you should try and teach into your kid. But then realize each kid has their own uniqueness, their own giftedness. And if you can channel them to use their own giftedness to serve God, however God might call them to, whether they're going to be a doctor or a nurse, whether they're going to be uh, an engineer or a scientist or a missionary or uh, somebody who uh, does all kinds of jobs that um, there's carpentry and steelwork and all kinds of great jobs that help people, whether they're going to work in Walmart or Home Depot, what we call the big box stores. Uh, it doesn't matter the job they have. It matters how they do the job, if they're going to represent the Lord on the job. And so you want to train your kids to do that, to follow the Lord with their whole heart to pursue him. So that verse teaches you that if you're in the process of raising kids, you have to guide them toward the Lord and help them figure out the path that they should follow. Because most kids have an interest in everything, right? You got to channel it down and help them see. I, I know when I was a kid, they used to always harp on us. Cool. You can do anything you want to do. And I, oh, I thought, that's great. I can do anything I want. I want to be an astronaut. Well, you can't do that. Your vision's not good enough. You're colorblind. You can't do that. All right, I want to fly fighter jets. Well, you can't do that. All right, I'll be an electrician. Well, you can't do that. You know, I had to find something that didn't require color vision. I ended up being a Marine and then a business manager and then a pastor. But, but you know, there's, you can't do everything. You can't even do everything you're interested in. But parents need to guide their kids to find the thing that works for them to follow God and serve and honor Him. So that when they're fully mature, they can keep following God on their own. 
So turn to Second Chronicles chapter 7. And see, we, the first hint that we get that that wasn't a promise from Proverbs 22.6 is that it's found in Proverbs. If Jesus said that in the Gospels, we would interpret it differently. Not because it's different truth, but what the setting determines the truth. It's not that we pick and choose how we want to learn verses. It's that God gave them to us in different settings so that we can learn from them in the appropriate way. All right. Uh, now, in 2 Chronicles 7.14, uh, this is a verse that often gets applied to today. If my people, who are called by my name, will hum humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, a lot of people apply that today. You know, if my people today... In fact, several years ago, we had a, a 714 uh, activity. Like, I know Rikosis came over to our house on July 14th, and we prayed for America. And, and that's just something we did on 714. I don't remember who else came over, but, but we had different people gather in different spots around town on, on July 14th to pray for America. Was that a good thing to do? Yeah, it was a good thing to do. Were we clinging to this promise that God would heal our land? No, we weren't. And here's the reason why. There's only one nation in the history of the world that God gave a promise of land. What nation was that? Israel. Not the United States, not the United Kingdom, not the United Arab Emirates. Israel. They're the only one that God gave the promise of land. So, we read this and we understand this. It's written in the history of Israel. So it's a promise to Israel. So what can we learn from this? Well, let's look at it. The beginning of the verse, Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name. Now, we are not in a nation that's called by God's name, but we are people called by God's name, right? So we can say, all right, if Christians would do something here, it would be better. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves. We, sh we should humble ourselves before God, just like God asked the Israelites to. And pray. Well, we definitely should pray. And seek my face. Well, we should do that too. And turn from their wicked ways. Okay. We should do all those things, shouldn't we? We find those truths elsewhere in Scripture as well. Then he says, then will I hear from heaven. If you seek God, will God hear you? Yeah. In, in fact, James writes it this way. Draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to you. He'll meet you there. Draw nigh to him, you move toward him, he'll move toward you. So these are universal truths we find in Scripture. It's not just to the nation of Israel. And he says, then will I heal from heaven and will forgive their sin. What do we find in uh, 1 John uh, 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So yes, those things apply directly to us. But after he says, I will forgive their sins, he says, and heal their land. So let me tell you this, if all the believers in the United States, 
If every single believer would genuinely seek God, pray, uh, yearn for God, follow his ways, turn from their sin, God would forgive them. He would hear and he would forgive. But he doesn't promise to heal the United States, the land. The only nation in the history of the world that had the promise of land was Israel. So we have to interpret it accurately based on when was it written, to whom was it written, how was it understood by those they received, where does it fit, and where is it found in the scripture helps us understand. All right, the second question that we have to ask is what comes before? What comes before? And here I want you to turn to Jeremiah 29, verse well, well, we'll get there in just a minute. Jeremiah 29. <laughs> Jeremiah 29 is a verse that uh, we hear a lot. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. And, and here's God speaking. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. But verse 11, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Uh, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. You, you find this in Christian greeting cards all the time. And cards to encourage people. They're going through hard times. I know the plans that I have for you. That's in a lot of graduation cards. As they're getting ready to graduate and kind of head out. I know the plans that I have for you. And, and this is great. A lot of people claim this. Man, God has these wonderful plans for my life. He's going to bless and enrich me. Because that verse promises it. But when we're looking at context to understand it contextually to fit the scripture in where it actually comes from, you have to look at what comes before. So what do you think comes before verse 15? 14, 13, 12, 11. All right, let's jump back to verse 10. Okay, let's start there. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you. After how long? 70 years. See, verse 4, the Lord says, I'm going to allow you to be carried away captive. And I'm going to be cause you to go from Jerusalem to Babylon. And he said, while you're there, there's prophets who are going to tell you, it's time to go back. The Lord's going to deliver us. And I'm telling you, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to wait for 70 years. All right, Todd, how long before you get your driver's license? 338 days. <laughs> 338 days I love you Todd that was great alright what if your dad said Todd you're a really responsible young man I'm going to let you have the keys to the truck in 70 years 
That's a little bit longer than 338 days, right? Yeah, I mean, really. How many of you would like to wait 70 years for anything? Even you kids, you don't want to have to wait 70 years for the rapture. You know, you want... Uh, so, 70 years. And these prophets were saying, oh, this is temporary. God's going to let us out. And God said, I'm going to allow you to languish in Babylon for 70 years. And then I'm going to bring you out. So, hey, Savannah, happy graduation. She's, she's graduated. We're going to give her a graduation card that says, in 70 years, God will bless your life. <laughs> See, you have to look at it contextually. You can't pull that verse out and say, God's going to do amazing, cool things in my life. He is. But he promised them they would have to wait 70 years. So he told them, build houses and have, take wives and have sons and daughters and have your kids have sons and daughters. And then I'm going to do it because I know the plans that I have for you. You have to look at it contextually. What comes before? And then the next part, what do you think comes after? You're looking at context. What comes before? What's the next thing you might do? What comes after? What follows after? And so I got this picture. It's this bridge going to who knows where. Uh, it's, it's one of the coastal towns or a swamp area. But you're looking ahead. What's coming next? So let's look there in Jeremiah. We just read verse 11. I know the thoughts that I think toward you. Then it continues. Then... You will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. How long before he listens to their cries? Seventy years. Then you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord. I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. After 70 years. So, no verse is a private interpretation. We can't pull a verse 11 out of this chapter and say, Oh, these are God's plans. Let's get happy and rejoice. We have to look at the context in which it was given. Now, we're in the New Testament, right? So here's Jeremiah chapter 11 in its context. We looked at what came before, a little what came after. Now let's come over here where we live, and we look back on that. What can we learn from this passage in Jeremiah? God keeps his promises. What's something else? We just keep on working. Just keep on working. Somebody else had something. To obey. To obey. We need to obey. And we also learn that God has his own timetable. God has his own timetable. You know, it's like that old prayer, God, give me patience and give it to me now. You know, we, we want it now. We don't want to have to wait. God has his own timetable. I know people who have prayed and prayed and prayed for a child, a grandchild, a friend, a family member, who's strayed away from the Lord. And they're in agony and agony and agony. And then the Lord suddenly brings deliverance. 
and that person's turned back to the turns back to the Lord. And, and what a blessing. God works on his own timetable. We submit to him. We have to obey. He's in charge. He's sovereign. He can allow us to go through and endure for a long time. And it's our job to obey and trust and keep working. All right, now, number four, how does this relate to the overall teaching of Scripture on this subject? <clears throat> how does it relate to the overall teaching of Scripture on this subject? I want you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And while you're doing there, I want to tell you about two verses on prayer, okay? If, if you only have one verse on prayer in the Bible, and it says, go into your closet and pray to your father in secret, and your father who seeth in secret will reward you openly. And then, the, then you have a second verse, and it says, pray without ceasing. What are you going to do? You're going to die in the closet, right? You go in the closet, you pray to your father in secret, and you pray without ceasing. You have to look at all the Bible says about prayer, and it says a lot about prayer. We have to look at it all. How does this relate to the overall teaching of Scripture on this subject? Let me give you a good illustration from Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 15. For I commend enjoyment, because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry, for this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life which God gives him under the sun. All right, so here's Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. And Solomon's saying, as part of this letter, enjoy yourself. There's nothing better than to eat, to drink, and be merry. Does that sound like our culture? Yeah, yeah, it does. Does that sound like the teaching of God's Word? No, but, but it's there. It's in God's Word, right? But remember, no scripture is a private interpretation. In fact, you can't understand much of anything in Ecclesiastes until you go to the last two verses. So, I encourage you to do that, okay? The last two verses of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. Now, in this book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon rambles. and In fact, chapter 2, if you read it in the King James, it sounds like he's Italian. Because I build me houses, I build me vineyards, I build me... You know. um, okay. Sorry about that. Let's get back to the Word of God, okay? But all through this chapter, he said, I sought after this, I sought after that, I tried this, I tried that, nothing worked. Now, here he comes down, verse 13 of chapter 12. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. All this stuff that I wrote about, some which was coherent, some which seemed to just be rambling, I'm tying it all together. Here's the conclusion. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So, if we look in chapter 8 and verse 15, as we did, and it said, hey, eat, drink, and be merry. We have to come to the conclusion. See, if, if we take scripture out of context, 
If we try to read something into it that might not be there, that might not fit with the rest of, of the scripture, then we are messing up what God wants to do. By seeking the full context, context of scripture, we learn there's a big difference between what the Bible says and what the Bible teaches. See, sometimes the Bible records things. I once had, did a question uh, to people, and I, you know, it was a survey thing. And one of the survey things was, true or false, the Bible contains lies. And the correct answer is true. It contains a 100% active, actual historical record of lies. For instance, in Isaiah 14, what did Satan say? What did Lucifer say? I will be like the Most High. Is Lucifer anything like the Most High? No. It was a lie. It was a lie when he spoke to Eve in the garden. He said, you won't die. So it, the Bible includes historically accurate records of people lying. But the Bible doesn't teach anything that's a lie. It says things and it teaches things and we to get what it teaches we have to look at all the different ways in which it says how does it relate to the overall teaching of scripture on this subject because any verse can tell you something the bible says but only fitting it together can tell you what the bible really teaches and so that's what we do a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat drink and be merry Yes, that's what the Bible says, but that's clearly not what the Bible teaches. That's not even what Solomon taught in Ecclesiastes. That was a minor point as he's developing his argument to bring it to the conclusion that you need to fear God and obey him and submit to him because someday you're going to answer to him. And that was his message. So how do we discern the context of Scripture? Number one... Where is it found in Scripture? Number two, what comes before? Number three, what follows? Number four, how does it relate to the overall teaching of Scripture on that subject? And number five, how does it relate to the overall teaching of Scripture on any subject? We have to fit it together with the whole thing. We don't lift a verse out of context. We don't try and read something into it. We try and fit it together with what we know of God's Word. Okay? Here's the biggest thing. The biggest part. Number six. What do I need to do about it? Once you read it, once you study it, once you figure it out, what do I need to do about it? So let's go back to the beginning. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. Knowing this first, that no, script, no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So I hold in my hand a God-breathed book. 
The Holy Spirit of God stirred the hearts of men who recorded God's message, and then it was translated so that I could understand it. And now what do I need to do with this book? You need to read it. You need to learn it. You need to submit to it. You need to obey it. You need to let it make a change in your life. We don't just have fun facts to know and tell. We have God's truth to transform our lives. So what happens with some people is instead of getting to this final question, what do I need to do about it? They come up with, how much can I get away with? In fact, I had a friend tell me once, he said, you know, I look in the Bible, I don't see anything that prohibits it. I said, that's the wrong question. Ask yourself, where does the Bible encourage it? And chase after the things the Bible encourages, and then you won't get caught up in those other things. See, it's, it's God's word. It's his instruction. It's his will. It's his purpose. It's, we gain our understanding by learning his word. We cannot follow spiritual priorities unless we choose to read, study, and follow God's word. How do you know their spiritual priorities? You read what this says about it. And then you follow God the way God intends for his kids to follow him.